Coming up on this episode, we've got a special panel discussion with three incredible authors of young adult books. Welcome to episode 429 of the Big Gay Fiction Podcast, the show for avid readers and passionate fans of queer romance fiction. I'm Jeff, and with me as always is my co-host and husband, it's Will. Hello, Rainbow Romance Reader. It is so great to have you with us as our super summer bonus episodes continue. That's right, the bonus episodes just keep on coming. Originally, we planned to be weekly for May and June, but the fun is going to continue all the way through July. And we have got some truly spectacular interviews coming up for you later this month. Oh, we do. We couldn't help but keep going weekly because of some of the stuff that we've got coming up. Before we get to our discussion of young adult books, I want to tell you a little bit about what I've been reading recently. Luke by Cora Rose has been in my TBR for like ever. <laughs> Did you go back into the archives for this one? <laughs> Kinda. You know how sometimes where you just like, you look at something one too many times and you just decide that today is the day. Mm-hmm. Well, that's what I did with Luke, and I am so glad that I finally dove into this. It is, ugh, chef's kiss. So good. It's about a laid-back nice guy named Luke, and he meets cute, uptight Dr. Elliot. And I gotta say, it's like a match made in grumpy sunshine heaven, but like cranked up to 11. Luke has never fallen for a guy before, let alone a trans guy. But it's so funny. He just cannot seem to keep away or keep his hands off this particular doctor. And Elliot is resistant at first, but he is eventually won over. And he takes the sexual lead, which Luke discovers he doesn't mind in the slightest. (laughs) This book is so much fun. It is a very sexy ride. I recommend everyone check it out. Luke is available in ebook, paperback, and audio. So dealer's choice. Pick it up in the format of your choice. This is just going to be one of those episodes where we do a lot of damage to folks' TBR between the recommendation that you just gave plus what we're going to hear from these authors. Now, it may be the beginning of July, but we're actually going to keep Pride Month going just a little bit longer. To celebrate the month, young adult novelists Abdi Nazimian, Jason June, and Sonora Reyes joined forces for a book tour. And just before that kicked off, I had the opportunity to talk to the three of them. We're going to talk about their new books, Abdi's Only This Beautiful Moment, Jason June's Riley Weaver Needs a Date to the Gabutante Ball, and Sonora's The Lewis Ortega Survival Club. We're going to find out about the books, how they reflect each of the authors, and what they've been hearing from readers already, and so much more. Now, I don't think we've ever given a content advisory ahead of an interview, but I do want to give one here. As we're discussing what pride means to each of the authors, Sonora talks about their mental health, and it might be a story that is too much for some listeners. If it's better for you to bypass that, you just need to skip forward about 90 seconds. And now, on with this amazing conversation. I'm so excited by having all of you here. Abdi, Jason, Jude, and Sonora, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks for having us. So I would love for you to each take a moment to introduce yourself and tell us about the book that we're here to talk about, which in, in this case is your latest for each of you. And Abdi, we'll come and start with you first. So my name is Abdi Nazemian. My latest book is called Only This Beautiful Moment. It's very much inspired by my desire to piece together my own histories, both my Iranian history and my queer history. So I was born in Tehran, lived in four countries by the time I was 10 when we moved to the United States. And like many immigrants, my parents shielded me from the trauma of our history. Queer history, obviously, when I was growing up, wasn't even available to me. So This book is an intergenerational family story about three generations of men in the same Iranian family. And it goes from old Hollywood of the 30s to the Iranian revolution of the 70s to the present day in both 
the United States and Iran. And it's very much about these generations coming together through finally sharing the truth of their histories and putting the secrets aside and and building unity. So much just unpacking that one book. (laughs) (laughs) Jason June, of course, it's great to have you back here with us. Tell us about Riley Weaver. Yes, I'm so happy to be back. And Riley Weaver Needs a Date to the Gabitant Ball is my latest book with the longest, most campy title that I'm so excited about. And it follows Riley Weaver as he's trying to get into the Gabitant Society, which is inspired by debutante societies. And in that process, there is a Gabitant Ball at the very end where somebody from your old life introduces you to society when you're ready to make your mark. It's like this out and proud queer person ready to take on the world. And you need to have a date for the ball. It doesn't have to be romantic, but teens being romantically and hormonally inclined tend to have romantic dates. And Riley is told by another masculine gay classmate that he will not be able to find a gay date in time for the ball because gay guys like guys. That's why they're gay. They're dudes who like dudes. And Riley as a femme person does not fit that mold. And so Riley starts a podcast called Riley Weaver Needs a Date to the Gay Butant Ball detailing the ups and downs of dating while gay and femme, and hopefully finding a date in time. Sonora, tell us about your book. Yeah, so the Luis Ortega Survival Club follows Ariana Ruiz, who is a queer, autistic teenager. Uh, She has selective mutism, so she only talks when she feels extremely comfortable around someone, which is really only at home, at least in the beginning of the book. Before the book starts, she is assaulted at a party, and so the book follows the event where she teams up with an anonymous pen pal to get revenge on this guy, and they may or may not fall in love in the process. I'd like to stay with you, Sonora, about your book for a little bit, because sure. you know young people face so many challenges with their orientation, sorting out their orientation. And then you also add some aspects of disability in here as well with Mm -hmm. being on the autism spectrum and that selective mutism. How did you bring all of that together? What inspired you to have her be identifying in all those ways? Well, I think it's just me. Like I have, so I'm autistic. I was, I had selective mutism growing up. I don't, I mean, I still have my selective mutism moments now, but I'm obviously able to talk a lot more than I used to, but I wanted to write a story about what that was like and what what things were like, you know, not always being able to express myself. And I, you know, I was also queer and I was also Mexican. And so I was also like all these things. So I wanted to kind of just tell a story that felt a little bit more like someone that I could relate to when I was in high school. So. And there certainly, I imagine, weren't books like this at all when you were in high school. Not that I knew of yourself. if there were. I did not know of yeah. them. <laughs> and Abdi, for you, you've also brought so much together in this book. You've got three generations. They're Iranian, American, and they have queer identity. Where did this idea come from? I mean, just telling one time frame of the stories <laughs> would have been interesting. And then you take us to three very distinct ones. 
You know, honestly, my favorite novels are usually intergenerational family stories, often about immigrant families, because it's so personal for me. So, I mean, Pachinko would be a classic example your readers might have read of a book that I love. And I'm also a film and TV writer, and it's very hard in film and TV to do, like, the sweep of time, because it's very expensive to do multiple time periods and all of that. So I always wanted to do one of these stories. And I didn't think it was something I could do in young adult, but my editor really encouraged me. And each, each, each narrator gets to narrate their own adolescent years. And each story focuses on a journey either from the United States to Iran or from Iran to the US. So there's, there's a bit of a structure to it in that. And really what was fascinating to me, it's called Only This Beautiful Moment because the whole idea is that we're always carrying our history within us. I mean, we, I might be talking to you right here today, but I'm carrying my ancestors, both my Iranian ones and my queer ones within me. And we're all bringing into the now. So it's really about how these men's history is always present in their relationships. And the only way to truly move forward is to be honest with each other about it. And, and that's been my journey. You know, it was hard to be queer and Iranian. It is hard to be queer and Iranian still not easy. And I think I've done a pretty good job of navigating the culture and remaining close to my family because I've always been honest with them and I've asked for the same from them. And we, we meet through love, even when there might be some divisions. How did you pick the timeframes? Um, I mean, some of it was because of history, you know, so obviously the Iranian revolution was a huge moment when a lot of people had to flee the country and I wanted to write about that. So that kind of placed me in the late 1970s. I happened to always be obsessed with old Hollywood. So as a young kid, when I moved to the US when I was 10, I really didn't fit in. I was very isolated and I would just come home from school and immerse myself in old Hollywood movies. It was just this world of fantasy that transported me away. And that piece was a little bit inspired by, you know, it, it, it's about a young teen who gets a MGM contract. And it's like, that was always my dream. It's like, I just wanted to go to MGM and hang out with Judy Garland and, you know, and, but the truth is I would never have fit in there. I would have been this brown queer kid and Louis B. Mayer would have been like, get the hell out of here. So, you know, it was a little bit inspired by that, like going to these worlds that have fascinated me. I, I love, too, that you're bringing, you know, that era of Hollywood to young adults of today who, you know, may not even be watching TCM, you know, but understanding when uh, you say MGM, what that means. <laughs> absolutely. Well, you know, my novel, Like a Love Story, is about growing up in the late 80s and early 90s in New York. And a lot of it is about what it was like to be a gay immigrant in that horrible time in our history. But it's also a celebration of the culture, the community, the activists. And the title comes from Madonna. And in the book, there's a movie club where they're always watching old Hollywood movies. And quite a few teenagers have written to me saying they watched the movies mentioned. They're there. They're watching oh. Zeke Belt Girl and... Yeah cover girl and going to list of Madonna because of the book. So it's pretty cool to share the culture that, you know, affected me and that, and that culture that I think has been passed down by queer people through generations, to be honest. Yeah, it is definitely the, one of the ways that I certainly got, you know, my gay card back in the day was watching some of those classic <laughs> movies. <laughs> That's right. So Jason June, Riley Weaver, there's so much here about what it means to be labeled as something. I mean, you hit it right there when you told us like the, the elevator pitch for the book that, you know, because he's femme, he can't have a date. 
what do you hope that readers learn from this story as he navigates his way through this? Yeah, I really hope readers see the nuance in labels and how they can be really liberating, but they can also be so limiting. First of all, because there's there's just legit limits to our language. And even though we're getting so many more labels in the like cultural lexicon right now, it still doesn't fully encapsulate every moment of being for all of us within the queer community. And also because labels at their core are meant to be a tool to connect with each other, with people who are outside of our same communities too. And people can use those instead as a way to keep you out and instead say, oh, because the majority of this label looks a certain way, that's, those are the only people that can have this label. And I'm hoping that readers see we should be much more open-minded than that. And also to realize, especially when it comes down to gender and sexuality, so much of that is focused on the type of relationships, romantic or physical, that we want to have. And readers need to keep in mind that just because you have certain preferences, which are totally natural, we'll have things where for some people, they love it when their partner is taller than them or shorter than them, or they love a shaved head or they love a belly, whatever it is. There's just something about physical characteristics of another person that presses their buttons. And that's a beautiful, totally natural thing of the human experience. But don't confuse what you like to mean that's what everybody's going to like. And if somebody is romantically approaching you that doesn't fit the characteristics you're normally attracted to, respectfully turn them down and don't take the opportunity to take a dump on everyone that shares their label. <laughs> Elegantly put that. Some graphic imagery. <laughs> but yeah, it's like if you like this kind of brings me to the whole like a lot of people are like, oh, well, like with trans people, like yeah. no one <clears throat> like no one has to be attracted to you like kind of thing but it's like okay sure no one ha no one is saying that you have to be attracted right to someone for their identity or whatever mm -hmm. but what they are saying is be respectful like exactly. if you if you don't like i don't know blondes yeah and someone a blonde asks you out it would be universally seen as rude to just be like Blonde hair is disgusting and I hate it and you can't make me like it and no one will ever, you know what I mean? Exactly. Like, that's just, that's just not okay. <laughs> and yeah. So like for some reason when it comes to like, you know, femme guys or mm -hmm. like trans people or whatever, like people think it's okay to just be like. Gross. No, gross. Yeah. Get it well, away. Like, and there's a whole yeah. history in our community and I'm sure in heterosexual community as well, but of, mm -hmm. you know, racially yeah yes. that too yeah you know and i mean that's very very difficult i know yeah. for members of the queer community i mean i know myself like i used to have experiences back you know now i'm married and i have kids and and all that but like back when i would do the online thing mm -hmm. and the mm -hmm. apps and stuff like i would often you know because of how i present in a photo people tend not to know where i'm from yeah and i would sometimes have people ask me oh where are you from and i would say from iran and then they'd be like oh sorry not not interested only into white guys. And I'm like, wait, but you saw my picture. Yeah. You were interested. Yeah. You wanted to chat. And then <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you decided that I wasn't for you because you, and it just is, it's a very hard thing for those of us in the community who always feel a little bit outside. Yeah. And yeah. certainly I think with the trans community, I think since this is a, the focus here is on our community, mm -hmm. I know that, you know, as a 
as a, as a member of the community who is historical, as I have learned on the older side, there's a lot of my own friends in our own generation who don't spend as much time with young people as I do, who I hear say pretty not great things about the trans community or about the non-binary community, you know, communities, they may not have as much understanding and experience with. And I just think it's really important to have more intergenerational dialogue mm -hmm. in our community. Yeah. Um, we're getting enough hate outside the queer community to be getting it from within is just yeah. really bad. And I think we need to be fostering the opportunities for dialogue within our community yeah, to, right. so that we can be united so that when we're taking on the the big bad enemies, we're yeah. putting up a united front. Yeah, completely. My whole my whole take on it is why for relationships or for for hookups or whatever it is, why do people lead with what they don't like? That makes no sense. You wouldn't go to a restaurant and go, well, I don't want the clam chowder. I don't want the steak. I don't want the salmon. I don't want the server's going to go. Well, what do you want? What's going on here? What, to, quit taking yeah. up all my time. You're not going to go to the doctor and say, well, I don't need a nose job and my chest isn't hurting and I think I'm okay with my <laughs> bladder control. You're like, well, then why are you here? Why are you in this room? Lead with what you do like and the things that you don't like, you don't, you don't even have to bring up unless you're specifically asked. And then there's, you can get, you can still get colorful. You can still throw your voice in it without being disrespectful right. to a person or an entire community. Right. I, this should be like a way of life, though, because I have to say, outside of getting attacked, like when I get attacked with book banners and stuff, and yeah. then I'll sometimes I'll get upset and clap back. My attitude toward like social media and all that is I share what I love. If I love a piece yes. of art or I love something, I share it. If I don't love a piece of art, I keep my mouth shut because yeah. I know the yeah. creators probably put a lot of heart into it. And I but I feel like I go online and primarily whether it's about the arts or other communities or rights, people are focusing on what they Hey, mm -hmm. and I just think like, what if we all leaned into the things we loved and sharing them? Wouldn't the world slowly become a more <laughs> joyful place? Yes. Yeah, definitely. I could not agree more on that sentiment. It's like, let's just, you know, talk about what we love and the things that we don't. They're just not for us. And yeah, exactly. And then yeah. let people, the people, and let the people who love them, love them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it's okay. Mm -hmm. It's yeah. okay if you didn't love some movie that everyone else loved. Like, let them enjoy it. Yeah. Let people enjoy things. Yes. yes. Let them be. Jason, June, and Sonora, you've both got content advisories up front in your books. And you mm -hmm. caution readers to take care of themselves, which... I think is more important today than ever before, potentially. How do you take care of yourself while writing these stories? Because you're in those characters. And in some cases, like with you, Sonora, they're reflections of you. How do you take care of yourself as you're navigating writing the book? And then also having, of course, to edit the book. It's not like you just write it and put it away. Yeah, I actually struggled a lot with the Luis Ortega Survival Club. So I wrote it originally, like I wrote a really short first draft that I was like, okay, this book is going to be really difficult for me to write. So I'm going to write just the bare bones, like skeleton of the book. And it was a glorified outline. It was like 23,000 word first draft. And I was just like, I wrote like, I have like a system where I write watermelon for anything that I'm going to come back to later. So I'll just write watermelon, make this scene emotional or like, <laughs> watermelon add this scene that this happens stuff like that so i just had the watermelons everywhere and then at the end i have to like when i'm in a good emotional space most of the watermelons in that draft were like about the emotional scenes and like the parts where i had to like really grapple with 
what happened to her and like all of that. So I was like, okay, I'm in a good headspace. Let's do the watermelons. And so I would just go and like control find all the watermelons and do them when I felt good. Yeah, that was kind of my main, my, my main coping mechanism, I think, was watermelons. <laughs> yeah. I love watermelon, and I'm going to start to use that. <laughs> Not yeah. only is it one of my top five favorite foods, it's just a fun thing to say. <laughs> yeah. yeah. For me, it's with humor. I, you know, all my books are campy, zany, flamboyant, and so I like to weave in the, the heavier moments of life with, with funny moments with somebody falling on their face or with somebody making a funny remark because that's how I get through it in life too is where especially the moments where a character is grappling with something that I've dealt with or seen with people that share a lot of characteristics to me Mm -hmm. I can't in my everyday life let those people win I can't let the people that have the negative things to say win and the way that they don't win is by me living a really happy fulfilling amazing life and one of the things that gives me the most joy is laughter and finding the humor in things. And so that's how, that's how I really get through that. I think one thing that I also did was like make sure that this book was like first and foremost a fantasy of what I want to be everyone's reality who mm. like is, who has gone through this type of trauma because it is like, you know, the revenge fantasy, it's like you can be any type of person. You don't have to be like the perfect victim or anything in order to deserve your happy ending. And I just wanted to like realize that fantasy. If watching, like, I feel like my my biggest, like I feel good about this book moment was when I was writing the acknowledgements. So if you want to check out the acknowledgements, I won't spoil it, but I felt pretty good with that last paragraph. (laughs) I love acknowledgements so much. I love acknowledgements. Acknowledgements are so good. Sometimes they're the first thing that I read in a book just to see who the author felt important, who was important to thank for Mm -hmm. the journey they just wrote. You can learn a lot from that. You really can, yeah. Yeah. Abdi, you don't have a content warning. But I'm curious, given everything that you know takes place in this book, were there places that were more of a challenge for you to be able to write just because of, of your own experience? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I have had a content warning on, on my previous book, The Chandler Legacies. I felt really needed one because it really leans into abuse as well and a culture of abuse at a boarding school. So I'm certainly open when it seems very necessary. You know, with only this beautiful moment, there are there are quite a bit of scenes that are plucked from either my life or from what I imagine the lives of those who came before me, whether my father, his friends, their generation, and what they had to deal with leaving a whole country. You know, I can't I went through my own queer traumas as a kid. I can't imagine what my parents went through. I mean, leaving behind not only a country, a language, family members, your home, your belongings, I mean everything to try and, you know, find refuge and home in a new country. I mean, that's not something I've, I've experienced the way they did. I experienced it as a little baby with no memory of it. So, you know, it was trying to imagine all that. And that can be very painful. In a lot of times, you know, I'm, I'm going through the emotions as I'm writing. I'm crying as I write. I don't tend to plot out my book. So I, I let them guide me. I let the characters guide me. And sometimes they really make me cry because they're revealing things to me I didn't even know were there. 
And that can be really emotional, but it's also very healing, to be honest. It's the most healing thing. Like with each of my books, I feel like I let go of a little bit more of my own pain. And, and each time I, I end like a more open person, my heart feels more open. And the greatest gift of my life has been writing these books that are so personal. You can be a writer, but until you write the stuff that's in your heart and your soul, I feel like you're not really healing yourself. At least that's my experience. Totally same. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Putting my writer hat on for a second, the fact that you were able to not have an outline for a book that took place in three different time frames, <laughs> kudos to you, because I'm all for discovery writing, but then when you have all this, all these different timelines in play too, well no done. No outline whatsoever. That's and wild. then after that, the, so yeah, wild. but then after the fact, when I have a first draft, then I go back and I outline, I, I make an Excel spreadsheet. I love an Excel spreadsheet, you guys. Different <laughs> columns, different colors. I start to map things out. Then it's kind of fun and I see like what needs to change. But oh, I love writing without an outline. I'm a big, for anyone out there who's a writer, I don't know if you guys have done it, but the book The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron, it's like a 12-week course in unlocking creativity is my writing, my writing guide and it totally changed my life. Cool. Writing without an outline sounds like an attack to me. <laughs> I'm, I'm an obsessive outliner. I tried to oh, write really? without an yeah. outline once. Like one time, it was supposed to be a rom-com, and someone went missing in chapter two. <laughs> and I was like, this is a murder mystery now. And I, I was like, this can't happen. I, I don't know what to do. So like, I can't write without <laughs> Without an outline, I need my outline. <laughs> Otherwise, I go totally off the rails. <laughs> it's bad news. And that's and for the writers out there, I think this is a great lesson. In every writer's different. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Every writer has a different process. Every writer has different needs. It's really about discovering your own. Yeah. Process. Mm-hmm. Exactly. These books have each been out for a short time. As we're talking in middle June. I'm curious what you might have heard already from readers about these stories as they start to dig into them. What's been really nice is to see people's reaction to the Gabitant Society, which is this unfortunately fictional organization that I made up of queer teen tastemakers that want to make a mark in arts and media and activism, politics, all of it. And it truly is a space for everybody. And it's, it's, Pass fail. There's no scoring to get in. You just have to show that you can put in the effort to be a contributing member of the organization, which includes, you know, doing community service, being a mentor to a young up and coming gay in need, hosting an epic party (laughs) and and causing general gay chaos is my favorite pillar of the Gabutant Society, where you know, you can tell with all three of us, we're our own special brand of chaoticness and everybody in the queer community has that. And so it's just sort of making your mark in your own unique way. And it's been really nice to see people's reaction to an organization that truly is there for everybody within the queer community. And, and the only thing, the only label they care about is that you're a part of the rainbow alphabet soup of it all, but where you fall on that, if it changes, it doesn't matter. And they even strive to really work with allies in ways that they can. And that's been, that's been super nice. So as far as like what I've heard so far from people, from readers, it's mostly been like autistic readers and neurodivergent readers who've been reaching out to me just saying like, oh my gosh, thank you so much. Like 
I never see myself represented and like especially in this kind of book like where it's like also queer it's also like Mexican or so it's like a lot of intersectional readers will reach out to me like queer autistic readers or like Mexican autistic readers usually they're autistic and they have just shown a lot of like gratitude and they've been really really awesome so it's been exciting. Yeah, I think, you know, look, for me, the book hasn't been out very long, but I have had some really beautiful early responses. And it's always, you know, the the most moving are from people who feel represented or who feel like it gave them the power to maybe be more honest with the world about their own story. I do want to just mention one reader who is my dad. And I was not expecting my dad to read the book. He was actually the first person in my family to finish the book. And because the book is so much about fathers and sons, and one of the central relationships is between a, you know, a gay teen and his father who is not gay and who has trouble verbalizing his love as that generation of men often did, you know, to have his early approval. And he really told me I got the details of 1970s Iran, right? And of course, Mm -hmm. I spoke to people, but he doesn't know my research process. And I think he felt moved by my ability to dig into his experience and and tell it with empathy. And so that that's the reader that meant the most to me. And I think that response and that conversation I got to have with him is just such a testament to the power of the art. So for anyone who's listening, you know, this is the power of books. I mean, when you try and ban books, we're we're banning that dialogue. We're banning fathers and sons from bonding over a story that might unite their disparate experiences and you know, that, that's, a, that's a gift that this book's already given me one month in that I'm just wanting to share. That's just kind of left a little speechless by that. You don't always expect your parents to read your books necessarily, but to yeah. get that kind of response is really just wonderful. Yeah, truly. Kids finding themselves, obviously, in books is so, so important. And I'm curious for each of you, were there books that helped you kind of find yourself when you were growing up? Because young adult fiction, even 10 years ago, is vastly different than it is today. I actually didn't like reading as a kid. I hated, I I didn't think I was smart enough because I, I wasn't a good reader. Like I wasn't a fast reader. My reading comprehension wasn't great. So I thought that I wasn't allowed to enjoy it. Like I didn't realize you could read for fun until I was like way older and started reading fan fiction. So it was really fan fiction that got me into finding, like, reading again and finding characters that really resonated with me. And, yeah, so for me, fan fiction totally, like, saved my love of reading. After that, I started reading a lot more, like, as an adult, like, once I started writing original books, because I also wrote fan fiction. Um, But, yeah, so I guess just, like, Uh, If any readers are out there, or especially teen readers who, like, you feel like you're not smart enough, like, to read, it's okay to read in whatever form, like, brings you joy, whether that's fan fiction or, like, comics or graphic novels or whatever it is. Like, just read for fun in in any way that feels accessible to you, so. Definitely. I had a similar experience reading. I was a, a really avid reader when I was young, like, in elementary school and middle school. And then high school, I just stopped reading altogether. And it wasn't until I was an adult and could look back in hindsight. It was just that I never saw myself in books in the early aughts where, where I felt truly represented. And so it wasn't until my adulthood where I was finding books that I was like, oh, wait, this clicks emotionally. Like Stephen Salvatore's Can't Take That Away 
some of the things that Carrie, the protagonist in that book says, some of the things they say, it's like, I have verbatim said before about my own life. There's this moment where Carrie talks about hating their facial hair. And it's funny, and it's like this whole moment while they're having to shave. And it's like, I've said the exact words that come out of Carrie's mouth at that moment. Or Johnny Garzavia's 1500 Miles from the Sun is such a good book. And it really captures the ups and downs of coming out, where it's not instantly everything is okay. But there is instantly this moment of like, hope and I get to embrace myself and this is the start of the journey and that's so exciting. But then there's also the reality of the world we live in and not everyone's going to love the new you. And just Johnny puts in that perfect mix of, of hope and optimism yet reality. And mm-hmm. I just feel so lucky to live in a world where they're creating books and, and like connecting with them. So Yeah, it's so different. I mean, look, I, I have 11-year-old twins and I think for them, you know, there's such a wide variety of books that can speak to whatever they want to read within different genres and in terms of who's represented in each genre. That's not how I, I mean, when I was very young, like I said, I was always escaping into worlds of fantasy that clearly didn't represent my life. I mean, in my fantasy world, I was young Joan Crawford or Rita Hayworth or, you know, Ava Gardner. Like I wasn't me. I was escaping me. And until college, when I started to read authors like James Baldwin and Armistead Maupin and you know, Andrew Holler and kind of the the classic gay authors who opened my eyes to a new world. I mean, before that, it was like Madonna or Buss. I mean, Madonna was like it for, for what I understood of gay culture, and I'm grateful to her forever for that. But yeah, it, it's, it's quite, I, I mean, for me, it's quite a privilege to be telling these specific stories because, yeah, I didn't have them. And when I wrote my first novel, which was an adult novel and which came out in 2014, I was told by an academic, and I assume it's true, that it was the first novel to have a gay Iranian man as a lead character, and it came out in 2014, and I wrote it. So that's pretty wild when you think about the lack of representation that existed before. And so I've, I've made a personal pact with myself that every one of my books will have a queer Iranian character at the, at the very least, usually more than one. But but that it's part of my work in this world to fill the world with the representation that was that was lacking and fill that void. Now, it's not just a coincidence that the three of you are sitting in the same studio today as we're talking, because you're actually out on tour together doing stops in New York, D.C., and Atlanta. And in fact, you're just hours away from the New York event happening this evening. Yeah. yeah. Yay. What does it mean to you to be out together meeting readers this particular Pride Month? It means so much, like just being able to meet readers and see like their faces and and hear what they have to say. I like most some of my like moments of like the the best moments of my like author career have been from meeting readers. I yeah, I they 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 move me so much, and I just like love seeing them and hearing like how my words have impacted them and it impacts me like we kind of we have this cycle where like i my my writing does something for them and then they come and they like tell me about it and that does something for me and i'm like this is great (laughs) yeah (laughs) so i i love it so much yeah it's amazing to get that reader interaction when we're sitting alone for so much of our lives it's great to know that our words actually have meaning to people or that they even if they haven't read it yet they're interested in finding out what we have to say and especially right now with all of these book bans happening 
it's nice that that we get to go around to multiple cities and show queer teen readers examples of queer adults thriving and living an exciting life. And it's not necessarily about like monetary success or the fact that we're published, just the fact that we're living and yeah. and old in their minds and like and really enjoying our lives. When you're writing books, it's definitely not about monetary yeah. success. Let's exactly. let's be very clear. Exactly. No, exactly. but it's true. But look, it, it's a it's a strange pride, right? I mean, we've seen a lot of attacks within the United States, and I'm my my focus is always global. But even within these United States, we're seeing states rolling back queer rights or passing new legislation targeting queer people, especially trans people. And I think you know, I know I'll speak for myself. Like when I was getting the worst of the attacks about my book, like a love story, getting banned, and some of the attacks were very personal. Mm -hmm. You know, you get called a groomer and a pedophile and you get death threats mm -hmm. and you know a lot of people in my life were telling me to to step back a little mostly to protect myself which i totally understand and i have children and a family and concerns around that but i also think it's really important for us to show young people that we're not going to back down to these attacks that that our pride is is their pride and we're here to stand up and you know, I'll take those blows for young people. It's okay. Like, I'm strong. I've been through it, you know? And that's what it means so much to me. And it means a lot to me, honestly, that our, you know, when you see three authors on a book tour, it means a publisher organized it all and put, yeah. put some money behind it all and put time behind it all. And it means a lot to me that they're sticking by us. I mean, yeah. a lot of publishers are not taking this line down. They're standing by their queer, queer authors. Mm -hmm. That means a lot because that's not happening in every industry. Yeah. yeah kind of connected to that pride is also a time to you know celebrate who we are how are you maybe after the tour or in addition to the tour how are you marking this year for pride my husband jonathan he has many clients one of his clients is la pride so he just helped put together the big la pride that ended that was a time for us to celebrate his achievement we took our kids because one of our son's favorite singers megan the stallion was the headliner Ooh. the night we went so we got to share that with them and they invited a bunch of their school friends. So we got to bring some of their friends. And to me, that was so, you know, I spoke to our kids about how everybody, it was so many people and everyone's showing their pride in a different way. And for us, our pride was bringing our families and having this beautiful group of young kids celebrating pride alongside the community and for the community to see us, these queer families, it was just really, that was really beautiful. So that, that was for me, like the, the biggest way to celebrate pride. For me, I'm not a very outward pride celebrator, which is weird. I, it's, I, it, it's hard for people to believe this oftentimes, but I'm truly an introvert and not, not an extrovert. I like to be around people and have such a great time around people, but it does take my energy. And I'm realizing, especially as our art becomes more and more politicized, it's taking more and more out of me, not in a defeatist sort of way, but in a way where I feel like our job is a celebration of pride all year round, where we are creating a public facing, consumable form of art that people can use to connect with the queer community with an aspect of it. Of course, we're not representative of the entire community, but it's a way to get in there. And so for pride, I get very inward and I kind of take stock of where I'm at and what I, what I need in my own journey for my gender and sexuality. I have all kinds of insecurities as a, as a male-bodied femme person that I 
constantly grapple with and kind of take stock of and figure out where I'm at. And that's, that leads to me also realizing how far I've come in my whole journey. And that's kind of what I celebrate during Pride is just, you got here, <laughs> 35 years and counting. <laughs> yeah, I feel like kind of uh, similar for me, like I, I just need to celebrate that I'm here still that I've like made it this far like I, I'm 29 years old I know that's not super old but to me like I never saw myself living past like 18 even 16 like I thought that it was not gonna happen I like sorry I don't is it a, is it okay to talk about like mental illness kind of stuff absolutely all right so like I have schizoaffective disorder and I'm also trans I'm non-binary and like both of those things kind of lead to like lower life expectancy for me i everyone it runs in the family so everyone that i know is no longer here that has had what i have my condition and so i think it's just really important that i celebrate every day that i am here and i celebrate just like the fact that i've made it this far with like all the little pieces of me that exist and take care of myself honestly like i think it doesn't have to be so much an outward celebration like going to pride but for me it really is just like you know self-care making sure that i've had enough sleep like really taking care of myself this month and making sure that i you know i'm grateful for the fact that i'm still here yeah mm -hmm. thank you for sharing that part of yourself with our listeners Thanks for listening. <laughs> As we start to wrap up here, we love to get book recommendations and also recommendations of what to watch. Ooh. What kind of media have you been like consuming lately that you think our listeners should check out? Oh, everybody has to read Adam Sass's Your Lonely Nights Are Over. It's like the gay slasher book we all need. It's Scream, but everybody is gay. And it's so amazing. It's so well done. I love it so much. Adam is just a dream. And also in terms of watching, it's also kind of like scary-ish, but Yellow Jackets, I'm obsessed with. And I love that, I love that queer relationships are at the center of that, but are not the driving force of the whole story. It's not, we're not concerned about our relationship, even though when they go back in time, it's in the 90s. It's, we're more concerned of, are you gonna eat me or not? Like literally eat me. <laughs> I love that so much, it makes me so happy. <laughs> nice. I So I have been kind of in a reading slump lately, but I'm, I just rewatched Our Flag Means Death, which love, love, love that show. Also, The Untamed, which is like a sea drama, but also very, very good. And I feel like I should have three, right? But I can't think of a third one. <laughs> I'll, I'll recommend a book. This one I did read a while ago, but it did just come out, Andre and Santi Were Here by mm. Johnny Garazavia. That one just came out earlier in May. So highly recommend that one. It's really good. Two thumbs up, highly recommend. You can't go wrong with that. Yeah. <laughs> oh God, see now I'm, I read so much and then I blank on what I read. I'm halfway through, I know because I'm reading it right now. I'm halfway through a book called Olga Dies Dreaming, which is incredible. Did you read that? No, but it's on my list. I'm it's ready for really it. It's really good. I'm loving it. So that, I mean, in terms of watching God, I mean, honestly, I'm all about Criterion. <laughs> I love the Criterion 
collection and they just released their queer every June they do like a whole queer collection and this year it's like an abundance of queer classics but also like they have a whole series called Mask which is really focusing on both butch representation and trans mask representation I started watching this Brazilian trans film from I believe the 80s I might be getting the decade wrong but an old film that was really ahead of its time about a trans Brazilian poet that I'm finding quite moving. And then also for people who just love old Hollywood, they just released a Marilyn Monroe collection, which I find that so many people in my life like know Marilyn from like handbags and wine bottles. And I'm like, no, she was a genius actor whose work you need to see. So highly recommend you delve into that. Yeah. And then as a family, we watch RuPaul's Drag Race. We're a drag race family as all the kids are. This is why, I mean, it's so ridiculous, all the fear of drag, because like you see my kids and their 11-year-old friends and they huddle together to talk about their favorite queens. And they're just, <laughs> like they also met Gigi Good and Simone at, at Pride a few days ago. And all nice. the kids were just literally this group of 11-year-olds like bowing down to them. And, <laughs> but we just, you know, I don't know if every, anyone's watching Drag Race, but they just did a rusical about Joan Crawford and her life. And that was quite a thrill for our family because Joan is like, She's a part of our whole family. Yeah. Miss Crawford, the legendary Miss Crawford. I haven't seen that, but now I'm going to have to go look that particular oh, thing up. Because it. It's so That sounds brilliant. Good. It's so good. It was, yeah, we loved it. So what is the best way for our listeners to keep up with each of you online? I'm primarily on Instagram. It's, I think, you know, for our own well-being, we sometimes have to lean into one social media and... Yeah. Except that. So that's, I mean, I am on the others, but that's where I tend to actually be responsive and spend time. And I'm at, I'm abdaddy on Instagram <laughs> because what else would I be? <laughs> I'm also mostly on Instagram at Hey Jason June, but you can find me on all the others at Hey Jason June also. I'm on Instagram and Twitter mostly. On Twitter, it's at Sonora Reyes. On Instagram, it's at Sonora.Reyes. And then I think, yeah, no, I'm not going to give you my TikTok. Yeah, so those oh, two. Oh, God. I, I want to understand TikTok. I finally went to start a TikTok and Abdaddy was taken. So okay. I'm, I'm Abdaddyist oh, no. on, on Ab TikTok. Daddy because whoever is. took Abdaddy, I'm like, I'm more Abdaddy than you. Abdaddy. <laughs> but, but I don't understand it. It's utter chaos. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot. It's, I'm not, you know, any coppola enough to understand how to direct a... so obsessed with that coppola kid <laughs> <laughs> thank you all so much for being here it has been a wonder talking to all of you hope you have a great time on this tour and the best of success with your books thank you so thank much thank you for having Thanks, us Jeff. this was great this episode's transcript has been brought to you by our community on patreon if you'd like to read the conversation for yourself Go to the show notes page for this episode at BigGayFictionPodcast.com. You've got links to everything that we've talked about in this episode. Also, if you'd like to get book recommendations delivered to your inbox every single Friday, you should sign up for the Rainbow Romance Reader Report. It's this podcast's official newsletter. We feature new releases and upcoming books to help keep your TBR healthy and up to date. You can sign up at BigGayFictionPodcast.com slash report. And a healthy TBR is a happy TBR. <laughs> I don't know. I just couldn't resist that for some reason. <laughs> Thanks so much to Avdi, Jason June, and Sonora. I loved everything about talking with them, hearing about the books, and the distinct difference in having an outline versus not having an outline. That was a whole thing, as I'm sure you heard, and a very humorous part. 
I also appreciate how much they opened up about how their lives are reflected in these books and how passionate they are about making sure young people find themselves in stories. All right, coming up next Monday, author Jess Everly is going to be here, and she's going to talk about the latest in her Lucky Lovers of London series. Yes, we're going to find out everything about Jess's Victorian romances, and in particular that new one, A Rule Book for Restless Rogues. Jeff and I want to thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you'll join us again soon for more discussions about the kinds of stories we all love, the big gay fiction kind. Until then, keep turning those pages and keep reading. Big Gay Fiction Podcast is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more shows you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Original theme music by Daryl Banner.